0: We begin a new book of the Torah. We have finished now bracious Genesis, and Shemos Exodus, and we are on to Vayikra, the book of Vayikra, Parsha's Vayikra, the book of Leviticus. This Parsha has 111 verses and 16 mitzvos, and we are about to embark on the book of Leviticus that has the most mitzvos of any of the books, 247, and for those of you counting the book of Exodus had 112 mensvos and the book of Genesis had only three. And there's a very different tone and tenor to certainly this parsha, but more broadly speaking to the book. We've spent a lot of time in the end of Exodus talking about the construction of the tabernacle. And now the entire parsha is going to be dedicated to things that we do inside the tabernacle and eventually inside the temple, namely the idea of sacrifices. And we're going to get into sacrifices in just a little bit, what they mean, what kind of meaning can we derive from them. But the parasha begins, he called to Moses, and Hashem spoke to him from the Tent of Meaning, saying, it's a very interesting introductory verse, there really is no content, it's God calling to Moses, God speaking to Moses, from the Tent of Meaning, saying, and the next verse gives us some more of the detail of the instruction, and that is, speak to the children of Israel, and say to them about sacrifices. So Rashi, in this first verse, gives us a few interesting ideas that I want to share here. So first of all, if you'll notice it says, He called to Moses, and Hashem and God spoke to him, saying... So first he called Moses, and then he spoke to him. It says Rashi that every time God spoke to Moses, in fact, the most common verse in the Torah, God spoke to Moses, saying... Every time God spoke to Moses, first God called him. And that teaches us, A that it's proper before you speak to someone, you first call them, you first prepare them. That's number one. But Rashi tells us that when God called Moshe, uh, the term Vayikra, and he called is a term of endearment, and also that God spoke to him in the verbiage of angels. The word Vayikra, that's the the lingo, that's the parlance, that's the lexicon of the angels. Whereas when God speaks to the non-Jewish prophets, specifically Billam, we're going to meet in the book of Numbers, in chapter 23 in Numbers, it doesn't say that God called him Vayikra, rather it says Vayikar. It's a similar kind of word, but it's not a term of endearment, and it's also not a term of permanence. God speaks to Moses on a permanent level, but God speaks to the non-Jewish prophet in a more temporary way. Now, if you look in the Hebrew words of this verse, and even if you don't read any Hebrew, you'll notice that one of the letters, the last letter of the first word Vayikra, the last letter of the Aleph is small. And of course, all the commentators puzzle why is the letter Aleph in that word? Why is it smaller than the rest of the letters of the verse and of the word? So there's a few explanations that I think are worthy to share. Number one, you have the Baal Hatur, one of the commentators. And he says that Moses was very hesitant to write the word Vayikra. Like we said, Rashi says, the word Vayikra is a term of endearment. God called to Moshe, called to Moses lovingly. Moses didn't want to write that. He didn't want to be exalted. He didn't want to talk about himself, that he is you know, this great prophet that God calls out to him, God reaches out to him with a term of endearment. Instead, he wanted it to be Vayikar, like it says, by Bilam. But God insisted, no, when you write Torah, you write the word Vayikra. So Moses, so to speak, compensated in his humility, and he wrote the letter Aleph small, and if you don't read the letter Aleph, it's Vayikar. So, in effect, Moses was able to kind of convey the messaging of Vayikar and be happy from his, from the standpoint of his humility, but still God's will will be fulfilled That the word Vaikra is written. That's one explanation as to why the letter Aleph is small. The Kliyakar, one of the other commentators, he tells us that, according to the Midrash, that when we teach young children, we start teaching them Torah, where do you start from? So maybe you would think you would start from the beginning, at the beginning of Genesis. That's what you maybe you would think. Says the Midrash, no. When you teach, young children, about the Torah, you start from the book of Leviticus. Why? Because the book of Leviticus is going to be dealing with matters of holiness, matters of sacrifices, and you know what? Who's holier than children? Children are innocent, they're free of sin, they're the epitome of holiness, and therefore, holy children to study the holy book, the book that deals with holiness. And therefore, the Aleph, the first letter of the Torah is small to tell us that we teach the small children right over here. This is where we begin. So after this first introductory verse, we get into uh, right away into the sacrifices. Tell the Jewish people, this is verse 2, when a man among you brings an offering to Hashem from the animals, from the cattle, from the flock, you should bring the offering. And the first couple of verses are going to detail actually what happens with a sacrifice. So it tells us what kind of animal. got to be a healthy animal. It's got to be unblemished. It can't be one that... Did any murder. It can't be one that was used for bestiality, not a stolen animal, not one that was worshipped or designated for idolatry. You bring it to the missionary, you bring it to the tabernacle. The person who brings it places their hands above the head of the animal. They uh, repent and the animal slaughtered. You have their Kohen catch the blood and they walk it to the altar and they spritz it on the walls of the altar. And each sacrifice is a different place where the blood is spritzed. And the Ola, for example, the first sacrifice that we read about, you do it twice on two of the corners of the altar, which cover all four sides. If you do it at two opposite corners, then it will cover all four sides, all four walls. And then you dissect the animal and you clean the various innards of the animal. You burn the head and the hard fats on the pyre on top of the altar. And then you uh, sometimes you eat some of the meats. Uh, In the case of of the Ola, you don't eat the meat. It's just entirely burnt. And the section concludes why it's a fire offering a satisfying aroma to God. And this is something that's worthy to kind of spend some time to understand the whole idea of sacrifices. One of the main themes of the book of Leviticus is sacrifices and all different kinds of sacrifices and all different manners of offering them and all these laws that are very difficult for us. You know, We haven't experienced a temple. It's very hard for us to try to visualize, to understand what the meaning behind it all is. And we read that this is a pleasant, satisfying aroma for God, it's a very unusual thing, and it seems to us like a very uh, strange subject. And I know personally, no subject that I talk about raises as much incredulity as the idea of us building a temple on Temple Mount, having Messiah, having a Jewish king, and reinstituting sacrifices. You know, we believe that we had two temples, but we're going to have a third temple, third temple is going to be permanent, and all the laws of the Torah are going to be uh, reinstituted. So, of course, as many agricultural laws that we don't fulfill today, or we can fulfill today, many sacrificial laws, many laws of purity and impurity, all of them are coming back with the third temple. Now, from my anecdotal experience, it seems like no subject is as difficult for people to absorb ...as the idea of animal sacrifices. Capital punishment, sure. Building the temple in the most sensitive geopolitical location, sure. Restoration of the Davidic monarchy, no problem. Implementation of Torah law over the land of Israel, okay. Animal sacrifices, that sounds primitive, that sounds barbaric, that sounds cruel. And we read all these details. The whole Parsha is going to be dealing with various kinds of sacrifices... So what I want to try to do and to spend some time on is understand these ideas. How do we make these things a little bit more understandable, a little more relevant to our lives? So I want to begin by suggesting a more general approach of sacrifices in general. There's a set of verses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 12, which say something very surprising. This is chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. The verse reads, When God shall expand your borders, like he spoke to you, And you shall say, I want to eat meat, because I am desirous of meat. You should surely know you could eat meat to your heart's content. However, if you live very distant from the place where God has selected to dwell, meaning you live far from the Mishkan, far from the temple, far from the tabernacle, and therefore you can't get there, you live so far away, don't worry, you shall slaughter from your livestock, from your sheep, that God gave you like he instructed you, and you shall eat in your hometown to your heart's content. So this is an interesting verse which deals with the idea of kosher, meaning that when you want to eat an animal, a, a livestock sheep, you have to first slaughter it in the way that God instructed us. Now incidentally, this verse is a proof in the written Torah to the existence of the oral Torah. Why? Because the verse tells us that we shall slaughter from our cattle, from our livestock, and from our sheep the way God instructed us. And if you actually look from the beginning of the book of Genesis till the end of the book of Deuteronomy, there is no reference and there is absolutely no indication as to how we are supposed to slaughter an animal for it to be kosher. Yet the verse states that we should slaughter it like God instructed us. Evidently, or undeniably, there is some other instruction that was not written down, and that's what we call the Oral Torah. That's one idea from this verse. But I think more broadly, kind of you look at how this set of verses are positioned. God will expand our territory. And you'll say you want to eat meat, but it's too far to go to the temple. Well, then you just eat in your hometown. It's kind of positioning, eating non-holy meat, non-sacrificial meat, as something that you do exclusively when God expands your territory, as we know, the amount of land that was conquered by Joshua initially didn't really cover all of biblical Israel. And in fact, we have verses that we read where God tells the Jewish people that whatever you annex to the land of Israel becomes part of the greater Israel. So in the times of King David, lots of land that was that's not today part of the state of Israel, but even what we view as biblical Israel was actually conquered and annexed. So someone could live very far into Lebanon or to Syria, and it's very far to go to Jerusalem. And therefore, the verse tells us, well, don't worry, you could still eat meat, even though you're far away from from the temple. But I think it's kind of interesting, you know, we eat meat, most people, people are not vegetarians, we eat regularly. And it seems like eating regular meat is something that the Torah positions or exhibits as something that you do almost exclusively solely because you live far away from the temple. What does eating meat have to do with the temple? But I think this gives us an insight as to the idea of a sacrifice. You know, we today, we eat meat, and it's not something which is so unusual. You know, you take an animal, you kill it, and you consume the meat. And that was a sacrifice. A sacrifice essentially was a steak dinner, but it also had a mitzvah attached to it. It was when the state of the nation was at a spiritual level where even when they eat meat, it's done in a mitzvah, meaning that the Torah is telling us, it's hinting at least, that the default consumption of meat was done via sacrifice. And therefore, what happens when you live far away? You may be a thousand miles away from the temple and you still want to eat meat, says the Torah. Okay, in that situation, there's another way to do it in a way that's you know, not a mitzvah, not a sin, you just slaughter it in the kosher way. I think this is a good way to understand the idea of sacrifices in general. You know, unless you're part of the uh, 6% of the population that's vegetarian, the idea of killing an animal and eating its meat, it's not something which is so unusual, it's a daily occurrence. That's sacrifices. You eat meat with the added benefit of doing a mitzvah with it. But more specifically... I think there's room to discuss the general idea of sacrifices a little bit more. And if you look at the commentaries here, they discuss the idea of sacrifices in, in great detail. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of run through some of the ideas that we find uh, amongst our sages, amongst the great commentators as to why we have sacrifices and what's the meaning behind it. So I want to offer a few explanations that we find in the Rambam. So the Rambam. In the end of the laws of Meila, which are the laws of infringing upon holiness, meaning that when you have some things that belong to the temple, temple coffers, you cannot infringe upon it, you cannot encroach upon it. So, at the end of those laws, he has an essay about the concept of a chok. Chok is the Hebrew word for a mitzvah, for a Torah commandment that we cannot understand, and he begins by talking about the idea of us trying to understand why we do mitzvahs. You know, there's all kinds of mitzvahs that we have in the Torah. And to the best of our ability, we should try to understand what the meaning behind it is. However, when there are things that we don't understand that are beyond human intellect, don't denigrate them, don't devaluate them, don't ignore them, don't repudiate them because we don't understand the reason, and we should rely on God that He has a very good reason for that. And he quotes some verses in the Torah that the Torah exhorts us to guard all the commandments, and guard all the statutes, and guard all the ordinances, and guard all the chukim, meaning the mitzvot that we do not understand. And then he gives some examples, and he says all the sacrifices, all of them, they're included in the general category of a chok meaning of a mitzvah that we cannot understand. Yet, nonetheless, our sages tell us that in the merit of the sacrifices, the world has continuity. Why? Because when someone does a mitzvah and they do it solely because God tells them to do it, not because it made sense to them, that's actually a greater mitzvah than a mitzvah that they understand. Because by doing a mitzvah that you don't understand and relying on God that he has a good reason for his instructions, that earns its doer a merit in, the, in olam abba it earns a doer a ticket to the afterlife so i think this is maybe a good place to start and that is with the rambam that he says that all the sacrifices are really something that we can't understand and yes if it sounds perplexing well that's by design because it's a chot it's a mitzvah that is beyond human intellect that's what he says in the ends of the laws of infringing upon holiness however the rambam has other books And specifically, there's a book that he wrote, famous book, called The Guide to the Perplexed, which is his take on Jewish philosophy. And in the air, he offers two additional reasons as to why we have sacrifices. In section number three, chapter 32, he says that sacrifices are a kosher outlet for an existing habit. Why? Because people, from time immemorial... They had a policy, they had a a custom to offer animal sacrifices. And therefore, when the Almighty tells us to stop doing idolatry, to abandon it, to destroy it, that was something which was very difficult. At the time, this was a custom, this was things that people did. The Talmud tells us that people had a great desire to do it as well. And to abandon a cold turkey, that would be very difficult. And therefore, the Almighty says, oh, you know what? You have an unhealthy habit here that you want to do idolatry, you want to do animal sacrifice for idolatry. I'm going to give you a kosher version of that. I'm going to give you, it's like the people who have, you know, the fake bacon. People who really got addicted to bacon, they have like kosher chicken that they make it taste exactly like bacon. And that's kind of a kosher outlet to be able to do what they wanted to do. Similarly, the Jews, they had grown accustomed to such activities and therefore, he says, "Okay, you could do this, but do it for God. Do it in a mitzvah." So, this particular reason, what the Rambam is telling us, is that sacrifices in general, well, really, this it's only there as a way to offer a cultural alternative to what would otherwise be idolatry. That's what he says in three thirty-two. The Ramban Nachmanides in chapter one, verse nine of Leviticus, and so right at the beginning of our book he quotes the rambam maimonides from elsewhere in the guide to the perplexed and he says a different reason as to why we have sacrifices and that is to negate the deities of our idolatrous neighbors why because the jewish people well they had lots of neighbors they had the the chaldeans they had the egyptians these nations were their neighbors and they would live amongst them and those people they deified various livestock and sheep. Why? Because the Egyptians, well, they would worship the, the the sheep, and the Chaldeans would worship other kinds of animals, and even today in India, they, they don't slaughter cows. That's the what the Ramban quotes. And therefore, the Almighty tells us, you know what, your neighbors, they revere these animals. But you, it's important for you to kind of heal this malady, because you may become acculturated to their ways and therefore you take these animals and you slaughter them and that's a way to kind of disassociate yourself from the ways of your neighbors to actually take the sacred cows quite literally that they have and to slaughter that now the ramban he asks a battery of questions on this ramban, and he disagrees with him quite stridently and he offers his own explanation this is going to be a fourth explanation as to why we have sacrifices his idea is that sacrifices, that's a way to supercharge repentance. And he explains, when someone does an action, well, an action is comprised of, of your thoughts, of your speech, of, of your activities. And therefore, when someone brings a sacrifice, that's designed to parallel the activities of the sin. And therefore, you take your hands and you place them on top of the sacrifice, and then you... Orally, with your mouth, you repent and then you take the animal and you burn on the fire and those are to kind of cleanse the thought and the desire and the lust, the fire of the lust and the hands and the feet of the animal corresponding to the hands and the feet of the person who did the sin. You take the blood of the animal and you sprinkle it onto the altar. That's corresponding to your blood and all the while, you're doing all these steps of the process. You're supposed to think about the fact that you sinned. And what is a sin? After all, sin is someone who repudiates the instruction of God, who rejects God. Well, think about it. You know, if you went to the king of Saudi Arabia and you rejected a direct order, you'll be killed right away. And here God gives us instructions and we disobey them. So really what should happen to us is exactly what is happening to this animal. And in every step of the way, you're supposed to dwell upon it and think about it, that really it's appropriate that your blood should be spilled and your body should be burned. It's only due to the kindness of the Almighty that he took a proxy. He took someone to stand in your place, and that is the animal. And that's going to provide you atonement. Its blood is for your blood. Its soul is for your soul. Its limbs are for your limbs. And in fact, some sacrifices, you're supposed to give some of the meat to the kohane you're supposed to have the kohen pray for you and the Ramban concludes that this explanation really resonates it makes sense that by bringing a sacrifice and dwelling upon it you could use the entire process as a tool to actually deepen your feelings of guilt and of regret and consequently of repentance and the sefer khanah one of the other great medieval commentators he quotes the Ramban, and he elaborates upon it. And he says, listen, you know, what do people like? What do people want? You know, they love the meat, and they love the bread, and they love the wine. And he says, look at the sacrifices. You bring in the meat, other sacrifices, you bring the wine and the bread. These are things that you're very desirous of. And the reason why God chose these things to be sacrifices because they're more likely to be more powerfully evocative. You desire this and you're giving it to God? Well, that's going to reinforce within your heart the feelings of repentance and expiation. And even someone who's really poor, they have to bring a little bit of flour, flour that they find very valuable. You know, that's tomorrow's bread. Yet still, they bring it for God as a sacrifice. In addition, he says a very deep point. You know, we have a body. And animals have a body. So what's the difference between a human and an animal? The difference is the intellect. We have the intellect, and they don't. What happens when someone sins? Says the Sefer Achenuch. When someone sins, well, they're acting like an animal, because they're acting as a body divorced from intellect. So there's no difference between the sinner and the animal, or at least at the time of the sin. And therefore, what do you do? You take the body, so to speak, you take the animal, and you burn it. To remind yourself that really, if you behave like this, this is what should happen to you. But also to remind you that this is what you should do. You should not act as this animal, as this body divorced from an intellect. And he adds that this will help guard you from sin. And when you reinforce this picture in your heart, you'll refrain from any future sins. And the Torah promises that your sin will be cleansed and you will be forgiven. So I think these are four good reasons that make the whole concept of the Parsha and much of the book of Leviticus, the idea of sacrifices, making them a little bit more palatable to modern sensibilities. Uh, So first of all, we have the general idea that really a sacrifice is nothing more than meat dinner, but it's done in a mitzvah kind of way. And more specifically, we find... Uh, four reasons. One is the Rambam, well, you're doing it because God wants you to do it. You can understand it. Two other reasons for the Rambam, it's a kosher outlet to a non-kosher habit or an existing non-kosher habit. And then there's the, the idea of the fact that our neighbors view these animals as deities and we want to destroy them. And finally, the Ramban, who says that sacrifices are all about repentance and it's all done in a way to really evoke the feelings of repentance. Now, I want to just add that the Ramban, he, he says that really Kabbalistically, kind of mystically, there's an, there's an additional reason and that uh, he, he talks about that, that there's a hidden secret in the idea of sacrifices. So that's the idea of sacrifices in general. And the entire Parsha is going to deal with the various different types of sacrifices. The first one is called the Ola. Ola is an elevation offering. That's an offering that's offered entirely To God, it's entirely burnt, no part of it is eaten by humans. Now the Ramban, in verse 4, quotes an interesting midrash as to why someone were to bring an olah. Later on, we'll read about the karbum Khatas, the sin offering or the guilt offering that people bring when they do a sin. Well, why would someone bring an, why would someone bring an ola? Why would someone offer a ola, an elevation offering? Says the Ramban, quote in the Midrash, that the reason why someone brings an elevation offering is to atone for sinful thoughts. When someone has sinful thoughts that arise in their mind, they arouse them. It's something which brings something up. It elevates it, and therefore, this sacrifice, which is an elevating sacrifice, well, that is to atone for things that kind of elevate into your mind. My grandfather pointed out, this really demonstrates kind of the spiritual state of the nation in the time of the temple. You know, if you live in Tzfat, and you have a sinful thought, in the times of the temple, what do you do? You get on your donkey, and you travel maybe for three or four days to Jerusalem, To atone for it via an elevation offering, via an Ola, it's kind of a different level of sensitivity to our spiritual state. Now there's an interesting Rashi here in verse 7. The verse tells us that the sons of Aaron shall make a fire on top of the altar, and they shall place wood on top of the altar. So Rashi quotes the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that At least in the times of the tabernacle, there was no need for a human fire. Why? Because when people offer a sacrifice, there would be a heavenly fire that would descend upon the altar and consume the sacrifice. So why would you need to make a human fire atop of the altar? says Rashi, even though there was a fire that descended from heaven, it was a mitzvah to supplement the divine fire with a human fire. So the explanation behind this is that it's God's policy to always minimize the miracle. You have a heavenly fire, but you minimize the miracle by also having a human fire, and therefore people who see the animal being consumed, they could kind of justify it by saying, well, it was the human fire, not the godly fire. Similarly, in the book of Exodus, we had the story of the Exodus and the splitting of the sea. And right before the splitting of the sea, the entire night, the verse tells us that there were these very windy gales that preceded the splitting of the sea. And that is there to allow someone who doesn't want to believe to enable him to misattribute the miracle and therefore to maintain free will. There's never going to be an instance where free will is going to be entirely suspended. There's always going to be some sort of way for someone who does not want to believe to justify what had happened by saying, well, you know, it was via some natural means. So that's the first mitzvah that we read about over here. And that is the elevation offering that is done with cattle with livestock. And then we read about an elevation offering that's done with goats or sheep. And finally, elevation offering from birds, which are done either small doves or big turtle doves, but they're also not done from chickens. So, There's an interesting comment here by one of the commentators, by the Rebbeinah B'chai. He tells us that the reason why you can only use large turtle doves, but not baby turtle doves, for this sacrifice, is because turtle doves, they're unique amongst the birds, in that when they have a partner that they mate with, they never mate with anyone else, with any other bird, ever. Even if their spouse, so to speak, dies they wouldn't mate with anyone else. Similarly, the lesson that we're supposed to draw from this is that the Jewish people, we're kind of connected. We cleave to God. And just like the turtle doves don't abandon their partner for someone else, we should not abandon God for some other deity. And therefore, because baby turtle doves have not yet mated, therefore they don't convey that message, and therefore we don't offer them as a sacrifice. A Small doves, why small doves, not big doves, uh, he continues of Baha'i by telling us that the big ones are envious, and therefore it's to teach us that only the young ones that so you don't have any envy. And finally, we don't use chickens why? Because chickens are promiscuous, and therefore they're not a suitable animal to be brought as a sacrifice in the tabernacle. Now there is a different process that is done with the bird versus the livestock and the sheep, in that the bird has its stomach removed before it is offered as a sacrifice on the altar. How come the stomach has to be removed by the bird, but not by the other animals? Says Rashi, that a animal, livestock or sheep, they only eat what their owner feeds them. Whereas a bird, it steals from other people, it is fed from theft, and therefore, we first have to excise its stomach before it can be offered as a sacrifice on the altar. Now, there's another interesting idea here with, with the process of a bird elevation offering and in that it is burned with its feathers. And Rashi tells us that, you know, the smell of burning feathers is not very pleasant. So why would we have the animal burned with its feathers? Shouldn't it make sense to first clear off the feathers and then, and then burn it? So Rashi tells us that. You know, these animals, you have the livestock, which is very expensive. And then you have the sheep, which is moderately expensive. It's a little cheaper, but still pretty expensive. And then you have the bird, which is very cheap. So who brings the bird? Well, it's a poor person. And therefore, to show that, you know, when someone is poor and they still bring a sacrifice, so to speak, God is still desirous of it and desirous of all of it. And even the feathers are not removed. That's the chapter one here. We read about three different elevation offerings. Initially, the elevation offering of a cattle, then an elevation offering of a sheep, and finally that of a bird. Chapter two is going to be dealing with a different kind of offering, and that is what's called a mincha, which is a flower offering. And there's going to be, by my count, six different types of flower offerings in our Parsha. So chapter two begins, vinefesh tisakrif, and a, when a soul shall offer a meal offering or a flour offering. So uh, the first one is a fine flour, you pour oil in it and frankincense, frankincense upon it. So Rashi tells us that why does it say over here a soul? When a soul shall offer, says Rashi, similar to what we just said earlier, that this is referring to the cheapest kind of offering, and that is one that is not even an animal. It's not even a bird. It is just flour. You may think that when someone offers something which is so inexpensive, it's not valued, therefore says the Torah, and when a soul shall offer it, meaning that God views this as if they're dedicating their entire soul. Because you know what, when someone is poor, and this is the flower that they in their minds assume they're going to eat tomorrow's breakfast, and still they say that they're going to give it to God, it's very difficult for them, it's dedication for them, therefore it's as if they committed their soul to God. So that's the first kind of meal offering. It's one of a fine flour with oil and frankincense. And then we read about the one that is an oven-baked one Let's make it like little matzahs. And that is uh, the second kind of meal offering. Uh, The third kind of meal offering is one made in a pan. And then the fourth one that we read about is one made in a little bit of a deeper pan, and all these, Rashi goes into detail to describe uh, the the result of these things are, are slightly different from each other. And then in verse 11, we read about some laws related to these meal offerings. So number one, it cannot be made out of any leavened bread, meaning it cannot be chametz. Nor can it be made out of anything sweet like fruit or honey. However, in verse 12, we read that there is an exception that there are some times that we can offer something which is more fruity or something which is leaven. Those are the exceptions. On the festival of Shavuos, so we bring the which is some which is a meal offering that is made out of chametz, that made, is made out of leavened bread. And in the summertime, we offer the bikurim, which is brought from the first fruits. So this is somewhat of, a, of an unusual formulation. In verse 11, we read, well, don't bring any meal offering that has any sort of leaven in it, and don't bring anything fruit, well, there are two exceptions that where you can. So the Kliakar, one of the great commentators, he tells us something very interesting. He says that, you know, the things that we really lust after, things that we we really desire, the desires of this world, these are hinted in the concept of fruits and the concept of honey. Just like, you know, when someone has honey, it's very sweet and you taste it and it's delicious. But if you have too much of it, it's actually quite harmful. So too, similarly, the things that we desire, that we lust after in this world, yeah, a little bit it's good, but too much of it is harmful. And the lesson for that is that the reason why there's a juxtaposition of verse 11 verse 12, don't bring it to the temple. Well, there is some, some exceptions. Every once in a while, once a year, you can bring a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Similarly, the lesson for us is that... There are things that we really desire, but could be harmful if we have it all the time, but every once in a while, it's okay. It's not a, it's not a problem. And then he adds, quoting from the Talmud, that the Talmud explains the idea of a yetzer harah, of an evil inclination, of a force that tries to propel us to sin. The Talmud in the book of Brachos, page 17, a compares it to leaven in the bread. And the leaven in the bread, meaning the yetzer harah, is again something that you kind of need in moderation, but not too much. Why? Because if you don't deploy some of the desires of the Yitzhara, you won't be able to procreate, you won't won't build a house, the world will not have any continuity. So a little bit of it is important, but too much of it can be harmful. So so no honey, no fruits, with one exception, no leaven, no chametz, with one exception, but, verse 13 In every one of our sacrifices and every one of our offerings, there has to be salt. Why does there have to be salt? So Rashi says something quite surprising. Rashi tells us that since the beginning of creation, there's been some sort of promise that was offered to the lower waters that they're going to have a place in the temple. Why? Because the salt waters are going to have the salt going to be offered with every sacrifice and on the festival of Sukkot there's going to be a water libation and therefore the water is happy because the water and the salt are both going to be offered in the temple. A very kind of unusual explanation we find here in Rashi. The Rambam Maimonides, he says that the custom of the idolaters was to not have salt in their sacrifices. Why? Because they worshipped Mars, and Mars is red, and in the sacrifices, in the meat, there's blood, and they wouldn't put any salt in their sacrifices in the meat, because the salt absorbs the blood, and therefore it pulls out the red from the meat, and therefore, in order to, again, try to destroy the idolatry and idolatrous practice, the Torah says that every sacrifice has to have salt within it. We then read about the special meal offering that's brought with the Bikurim, and chapter 3 begins with a different kind of sacrifice, and that is a shlamim, meaning a peace offering. The Rashi explains that this peace offering brings peace to the world. Why? Because everyone's happy with it. A portion of it is put on the altar for sacrifice, is burned for sacrifice. A portion of it goes to the owner, to the person who brought the sacrifice, and a portion of it is given to the priests, everyone is happy. And again, like the Ola, like the Elevation Offering, the Peace Offering can also be brought from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goat. So first we read about the instructions of the Peace Offering from the cattle. Uh, Again, very similar to what we read about with the the Ola, with the Elevation Offering, you bring it to the temple, you put your hands on it, you slaughter it, you walk it, you sprinkle parts of it upon the altar, and you burn parts of it, and parts of it are eaten. And then we read about the process that is done to the peace offering when it's brought from the flock, from the sheep, and finally when it's brought from uh, the goats. And chapter 4 details the laws of the sin offering. And like its name suggests, this sacrifice is brought to atone for a sin, not just any kind of sin, only certain kinds of sin. Rashi tells us that it is a sin that has the severity of kares, attached to it. The word karis means to be cut off. There are certain sins the Torah tells us that if someone does it, they get dissociated, they get disenfranchised from the Jewish people. And for such a sin, when someone does it accidentally, they bring a sin offering. So it begins with a specific sin offering when a Kohen Gadol, when a high priest does a sin. This is something which really has guilt for the entire people. Why? Because he's the representative of of the Jewish people. He's our emissary to pray for us, to bring for us atonement. And therefore, when he sins, there's a guilt that is distributed to the entire Jewish people. And he has to bring a specific sacrifice to atone from that. In fact, the Talmud tells us that when someone kills accidentally, when there's an unintentional murder, then the accidental murderer has to go to the city of refuge and he's there until the death of the high priest. Why does the death of the high priest, why does that free the accidental murderer from his incarceration, so to speak, in the city of refuge? Well, says the Talmud, because the high priest, his job is to pray for the well-being of all his constituents, and therefore when an accident happens amongst the Jewish people, someone kills someone else accidentally, then it's his responsibility, and therefore he is partially culpable for that accidental death, And therefore, when he dies, all the people who are in the city of refuge are set free. Again, it shows that the high priest has communal responsibility. Therefore, when he sins, it is a sin that invokes guilt upon the entirety of the nation. Now, there are some interesting differences between how you process the sacrifice of a sin offering versus how you process of the other offerings that we read, that we read about, the peace offering and the Ola, the elevation offering. So A, we read that when you sprinkle it with the other offerings, you sprinkle it with a vessel. You put the blood in a vessel and then you sprinkle it onto the altar. There's two differences here with the sin offering. A, you do it with your finger and B, you don't do it on the altar. You actually do it inside with the altar, meaning the outer altar the one that's outside of the mission, outside of the tabernacle. You do it inside the mission, and you sprinkle it towards the curtain, towards the curtain that separates the two chambers of the tabernacle. In addition, in verse 7 we read, The Kohen shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar where incense is caused to go up and smoke before Hashem. Part of the blood is actually placed on the inner altar, the altar that is generally used for incense, And the leftovers and the rest of the blood you pour at the base of the outer altar out of the, on the, what's called the elevation offering altar, the altar in which you process the Ola offering, which is the outer one. And there's another really interesting difference between how you process this sacrifice where you take parts of it and you actually burn them on top of the altar like you would with any other sacrifice. But there are other parts, like the hide and the flesh that have the head and the feet and the innards and the waist. All those things are also burned, but they're not burned on the altar, right, outside the tabernacle. Instead, they are brought outside of the camp, outside of the entirety of the place where the Jewish people are living. You go to a pure place, a place where the ashes are placed, and you burn it outside. Really interesting thing that we read that you burn the sin offering of the high priest in a very public fashion. Why? So the Baloturim tells us that there's a lesson here as well, and that is to encourage other people to not be ashamed of admitting guilt and repenting. You see the high priest, he's the greatest spiritual leader of the nation, and then publicly they bring the animal, part of the animal at least, and they burn it in a way that everyone can see. And in effect, the high priest is not running away, he's not ashamed from his misdeed and everyone who watches that will hopefully learn the same lesson and be able to not have the shame stop them from repenting. So that's the first sin offering that we read in chapter 4 here, the sin offering of a anointed coin of a high priest who made a, uh, a sin. The next sin offering we read about is a communal sin, which is when the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Jewish people, they ruled erroneously in a severe matter, and the public acted upon this ruling. That is a second case where there is a sin offering that is offered, and again, this is something which the entire community has a part in it. And this sacrifice is also processed in the same way that the sin offering of the high priest is processed. There is the sin offering of a ruler, meaning a king who sins, he has the identical rules to an individual who sins, with the only exception being that when a regular individual sins, they bring a female goat versus when a king sins, he brings a male goat. And then there are the regular sin offerings of an individual, the goat and the sheep. And again, with each one of these sacrifices, the Torah delineates exactly the Precise method of how they how they are done and how they are offered and how they are processed. In chapter five, we read about another kind of sin offering. It's called a variable offering, carbonola viorid. And this is brought for a specific list of sins. A, when someone denies testimony, B, when someone contaminates holy things by entering the temple when impure or by eating holy foods when impure, or or C, when someone has a false or an unkept oath. In these three cases, then they bring a variable offering. If they're richer, they could bring sheep or goats. If they're a little bit poorer, they bring turtle doves or young doves. And if they're really, really poor, they bring a flower offering. And this is, by the way, the sixth flower offering of the Parsha uh, for those who are still counting. And then we read about another class of sacrifices, what's known as an asham, which is a guilt offering. And these are for a class of sins where someone, again, it's not intentional, but someone acts in a way that via their negligence or via their general disrespect for the sanctity of, of, of what is holy, they commit a sin. And there's a variety of sins that puts someone in this category, which is like, like, think of it as a variety of a sin offering, but, but one with a little bit more guilt, and therefore it's called a guilt offering. So the first case where someone brings such a sacrifice is if they commit treachery and sins unintentionally, they are guilty of unauthorized use of super sacred property of, of the temple. Then not only do they need to bring a guilt offering, but they also have to pay a restitution for what they took or what they encroached upon, plus there's an added penalty, they have to add a fifth on top of the market value of what they took. So they have in effect, you know, three different punishments, A, to pay back what they took, to add a penalty, the the, the fifth on top of that, and to bring the guilt offering. And then what if there is a case where someone is not sure if they're actually guilty of something which made them bring a guilt offering, then there's a separate kind of sacrifice which is a guilt offering in the case where someone is unsure if they actually committed the sin or not. So, for example, Rashi says an example would be if someone has you know two pieces of meat on their plate. They know one of them is kosher, one of them is not kosher. They eat one, and they don't know if they eat the kosher one or the not kosher one, so they have a doubt as to whether or not they need to bring a guilt offering. In such a case, they bring a guilt offering in a case of a doubt, which is a separate sacrifice, Which is only brought in a case where they're not sure if they are indeed guilty. If they find out at a later date that they were indeed guilty, then they would have to bring a separate sacrifice, one that atones for a case of total guilt where there's no doubt about it. Now, this is really interesting. Rashi quotes some of the lessons of this idea from the various sages. You know, the the Torah is punishing someone even if they don't know if they're actually guilty. They have to make a sacrifice in a case of possible, potential guilt. So Rashi brings a a bevy of teachings from our sages to kind of go through what the implications of this are. So for example, Rashi quotes Rabbi Yosei HaGlili who says that here the Torah is punishing someone who may not even be guilty. How much more so can we be sure that someone will be punished for a sin that they did for certain. That's kind of like a, a, a pessimistic or a negative implication of this idea. On the flip side, we could view it very positively. You know, someone who may or may not have sinned is punished. Well, what if someone may or may not have done a mitzvah, had done something good? Well, then they would certainly be rewarded because God's treatment for good outweighs his treatment for bad. And therefore, even in this case, where it's kind of a so-so, kind of an iffy case, whether or not they're guilty, well, in a case where they're doing a mitzvah on the flip side, then all the more so that they are rewarded. And Rashi gives an example. If someone was walking in the street and they had a coin in their pocket, the coin fell out of the pocket, and then a poor person found it and was able to sustain themselves, well, the Almighty would treat it as if the person did a mitzvah and did the Great Mitzvah of Charity with their money, even though they weren't even aware of what had happened to their money when it fell out of the pocket. So that's the next case, the case of a guilt offering and the case of a doubt. And finally, we read about a case where someone commits treachery against God by lying to his comrade regarding a pledge or a loan or a robbery or by defrauding his his comrade, or by not returning a lost item, and swearing falsely, and all the things that a person could do, and sin thereby. So these are interpersonal sins when someone doesn't pay their employee, or if someone denies the loan, or all kinds of interpersonal sins. And Rashi says something very interesting, that the verse says a person will sin and commit a treachery against God by lying to his comrade. You know, if someone's lying to their comrade, you would think that that the sin is against their comrade, not against God. So Rashi tells us that when two people, they have an agreement between the two of them, but it's not written down, there's no evidence, there's no witnesses, there's no documentation, no contract, they should know that there's a third party to this agreement, and that is God. And therefore, when someone commits a treachery against their friend, the verse tells us that really it's treachery against Got to, and like the previous case where someone inadvertently took from the coffers of the mission of the temple, they have to add a premium. So too over here, they have to return what they defrauded plus a premium plus bring a guilt offering to God as an atonement for the sin of committing treachery against their friend. That concludes this parsha. There are all kinds of sacrifices we read about. The ola, the elevation sacrifice, we read about all kinds of meal offerings of minchas. We read about the peace offering, where everyone's happy, the various kinds of sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the high priest, the king, the Sanhedrin, when they commit a sin or when they give false instructions, and the people commit a sin. And again, the the overarching theme uh, that I think we should maybe focus on is the idea of repentance, the idea of sacrifices being a means to give an extra oomph to supercharge our efforts to A, acknowledge when we made a mistake and to be aware of that, to be aware that, you know, we should not be acting against the will of God. And when we do, we have to fix it, we have to atone it. And the way to do that is via sacrifices and repentance. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Parsha Podcast. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. I have uh, several other podcasts that you may be interested in listening to, uh, the Jewish History Podcast, Torah 101, Eternal Ethics, This Jewish Life, and the brand new one, the Mitzvah Podcast. I hope you have a chance to listen to them, and I look forward to talking about the next week's Parsha next week.